This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happiest Mother podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Kara Goodwin to the show. Dr. Kara is a licensed psychologist and best-selling children's book author. She wrote the book called What to Do When You Feel Like Hitting, and that is sitting on my bookshelf right now, a book that I've referred to many times with my own boys. She's the founder of the nonprofit organization called Parenting Translator, which specializes in translating recent scientific research into information that's helpful, relevant, and accurate for parents and caregivers. Today, I've invited Dr. Kara on the show to help us understand temperament. What is temperament? When does it show up in our babies and our children? What are the domains or traits of it so that we can tangibly see it, unpack it, and understand it? And do we as parents play a role in shaping it? Essentially, are we to blame? Because parents get a lot of blame and a lot of flack for creating difficult children. We also highlight the importance of understanding our own temperament as parents and how it can relate to our child's temperament and the toll or the invisible load that it can take when your child does have a more spirited temperament than maybe an easygoing, more laid-back child. This is a really informative episode. I encourage you to get some pen and paper out and jot down notes of things that stand out to you, but I also want to remind you that this is also all put into a really concrete blog post for you to return back to if you forget some of the traits that we go through in the show. To find your way to that blog post, just click through the show description and it'll take you there. All right. Are you ready? This is such an important conversation. It's going to bring so much context and insight into understanding your child. Let's hear my conversation with Dr. Kara. Do you ever wish that parenting came with a manual? I know I have many times. We think we know what we're getting ourselves into when we become parents. We think we'll always be peaceful and loving We think we'll know how to navigate tricky situations. And we think our kids will listen to us the first time we ask. But once we become parents, we're met with reality. Kids who struggle with their emotions, difficult parenting decisions, and suddenly we realize that breaking cycles is a lot harder than we thought. It's no walk in the park. The good news is that you don't have to do it alone. We don't have a parenting manual for you, but our therapists do specialize in supporting parents like you through your transition into parenthood and beyond. We're here to help you work through your own childhood, break generational cycles, stay calm during tough parenting moments, and form a way forward that works for you and your family. All visits are done virtually, so all you need is an internet connection. Not sure if therapy is the right fit for you? We'll help you figure it out. Head to happyasamother.co slash book to book your free 15-minute consult today. That's happyasamother.co slash book. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we're dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. We all had expectations going into motherhood, but reality often has a different plan. Let's work together in shattering unrealistic expectations, letting go of shame and guilt, and accepting where we are on our motherhood journey. 
We'll pack a toolbox for motherhood with expert advice, practical tips, relatable stories, real moments, and honest conversations. My goal is to give you the knowledge, tools, and resources you need to parent more freely. However, this podcast should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. It's time to do motherhood differently, toss out the idea of perfect, and enjoy the journey. Let's dive in. Dr. Kara, thank you so much for joining us today. I stumbled upon you on Instagram, and when I saw the really professional but like tangible way you're interpreting research for parents, I was like, oh man, we got to have you on. We got to have a chat because there's so much confusion and misinformation out there. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so curious how you went from sort of day-to-day clinical practice to being this like research interpreter on Instagram. How did you find your way into that platform? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So I'm a child psychologist and I was a child psychologist and a researcher before I had kids. I've always been really into the research and especially neuroscience research and helping parents to understand that was a big part of my clinical practice. Mm. And then I had children of my own. And, you know, first of all, my realization was like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Always, right? (laughs) It's just like, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And then my second realization, you know, as I made mom friends and I was talking to my other parent friends, you know, we'd talking about struggles and I'd say, well, you know about this study and they would have no idea. And it occurred to me that, there's all this research out there that there's so much money, time, and effort being poured into, but it's not reaching the average parent. And this is a huge problem because parents need this information. You know, they mm. need it to help them feel more confident. They need it to, you know, guide some of these really difficult decisions we have to make. So when I realized that this was kind of in the worst part of the pandemic and I, like a lot of people were kind of looking for a project. I had two kids and was pregnant with my third at the time. So I wasn't Mm. like bored, bored, but I was intellectually bored. So Mm -hmm. I just started writing up summaries of research just for my friends. You know, I would just ask them to follow me on Instagram and I would just write it up. And I started getting like a lot of positive feedback, like, oh, this is really helpful. I didn't know about this research. And they're like, you should keep doing this. You should get the word out there. So I just kind of continued growing the Instagram and I got to the point where I was like, okay, what is this? Is this like a business? Is this a nonprofit? And Mm. a nonprofit really seemed like the best answer because there already are for-profit companies translating the research, you know, the media basically. Right. And that's a problem. You know, we need somebody who's as unbiased as possible. And also I truly believe that all parents deserve access to these resources. So I've formed a parenting translator, which is a nonprofit organization. And the goal is really to take all the research that's out there and to translate it into information that parents can use in their everyday lives, hopefully to make their everyday lives a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what happens when research does get pulled into mainstream. It's usually by the media and it's usually super inflammatory. Hey, like, yeah. like a couple of studies sort of stick out in my mind about this. You had sent me one yesterday. We'll definitely touch on that with our topic today. But another yes. one was about like white noise and sleep causing like disorientation. Yeah. But it was actually in rats. It had nothing to do with people, but it got picked up by the media. And it was like, 
white noise is like bad for you. And you know, yes, I've seen some of those articles. <laughs> right. And so to the person who doesn't have the skill set to like, I wouldn't know anything about a method, the method section in the research study is like, the part I glaze over, you know, to get to the yeah. good stuff that really like impacts <laughs> yeah. my practice. So having somebody who has that skill set to say, wait a minute here, friends, like this isn't how it appears is really helpful in combating this like contradictory misinformation sort of era that we're in. So I really appreciate the work you do. It's really interesting. Thank you. Yes, I love doing it. So that makes it easy. Yeah. And today we're here to talk about temperament. And I reached out to you about this because I was like Googling and researching and you had come up, I think, in some articles. And I get asked by parents a lot about their child's temperament and if it's like normal or baseline or if it's not or how do you know or how can you describe or determine what their temperament is. And it's sort of this really abstract, vague concept for a lot of parents, though we do know that we have colicky babies or fussy babies or children who are maybe a little spirited or we've given them all of these words, yeah. but we really lack the understanding. And so we're going to dive into it today. Can we open up with just what is temperament? Like, can we define it? Like, what are we talking about here? Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of misconceptions out there about temperament. So temperament is a child's way of responding to the world that they are born with to a certain extent. So it's kind of like an inborn personality, whereas, you know, personality is kind of what forms based on your genes and your environment kind of interacting together that forms your personality over the course of, you know, many, many years. But your temperament is kind of just your style of responding that you are born with. And you can see this in very young babies, you can see differences that persist to adulthood. And so when we're looking at temperament in babies, what are some of the things that we see that help us to like sort of decode or know? Because obviously they're nonverbal. So there's only so many indicators we have, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of easy ways to kind of get clues about your baby's temperament without them, you know, having to speak or explain to us mm. kind of what's going on. So one of the main things you can look at is activity level. So even from birth, you can kind of tell if a baby is slightly more active versus more passive. And we all kind of differ in terms of our activity level. So that's one that you can notice in babies. Another one is regularity, which is how much do they kind of adhere to a schedule naturally or a routine naturally. So, you know, I know with my first baby, I had read that, you know, I had to get her on a schedule and whatever book I was reading, which I can't even remember said, you know, just watch for their natural patterns. And she had no natural patterns. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And I was so stressed out. But you know, in light of temperament, what I could understand is that she just wasn't high on regularity. So there are some babies that like literally will wake up from their nap at 3.05 every single day, okay. you know, and there are some babies that when they nap just changes every day. So that's a factor that you can look at even in babies. Another one is their sensitivity to different sorts of sensory inputs. You know, it's pretty easy to tell early on, like, do they jump with a loud noise? Do they kind of like shy away from bright lights? So looking at their responses to sensory stimulation. And then finally, you know, mood is a big one that you can kind of see from early on. You know, mm. I kind of hate some of these terms, but are they more likely to be fussy or are they more likely to be, you know, kind of easygoing and happy? That's a factor of temperament as well. Mm hmm. 
It makes me think back. So I have three boys and it makes me think back to each of their temperaments. And a friend of mine had her first around the same time that I did. And my first, I feel like postpartum anxiety thrown in the mix probably didn't help because maybe in retrospect, his temperament wasn't as challenging as I perceived. I was struggling a lot during that time. But that being said, my friend with her baby, he would like sit up in the like bumbo chair or whatever and just watch and observe everybody. Oh my and gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, he just sits there and like watches? What is this? And then mine would be like crawling and getting into everything. And my friend group called him the blur because I couldn't even get photos of him because he was just like on the move all the time. <laughs> and so I saw that and I was just like, it was so distinctly different. And I think that there are temperaments that can be more challenging. And there's a couple of things that happen in my mind. I don't know. You tell me. Like moms can maybe question themselves or be hard mm-hmm. on themselves if they don't know how to manage this temperament. Or it maybe like provokes a sense of like, I remember seeing my friend and being like, she's got it so much easier than I do. Like this is a really difficult yeah. situation, you know? So I feel like All of that to say, really, is that I think our child's temperament like provokes something out of us as well, would you say? Yes, 100%. And, you know, I have to say I have three spirited children myself, and I have had all of those thoughts as well, you know, even knowing this research on temperament. But I think that's why I like this research on temperament, because I think it helps those of us who have these children that are labeled as spirited or even difficult, which is a terrible term it helps us to understand that there's nothing that we did wrong. You know, it's not like your friend Mm. who had the baby that sat in the bumbo was a superior mother, you know, and she just created this incredible environment that just helped him to be calm. This is things that children are born with. And I think knowing that as a parent is such a comforting thought, you know, that I do not have a more challenging child because of something I did wrong. This is something that they are born with and that, you know, we can also see the strengths instead of just saying like, oh my gosh, my child's so active, thinking like, oh my gosh, he has so much energy. He's so fun, you know, just helping us to see the other side of it in the strengths. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's really interesting too, because I think when a child has a difficult temperament, I feel like society tends to blame the parents like, oh, you need to discipline him, you you know, but then when a child has an easy temperament, you'll hear something like, you know, oh, you got lucky or, you know, so it's, you know, it's like parents don't get credit either way. Right. Yeah. Right. I see that. It's the universe and the luck of the draw that you got this baby that sleeps through the night or whatever the example is when they're challenging. It's something that you're doing incorrectly. I see that. Yeah. And I see these challenges in temperament, like if we're talking sort of in terms of developmental stages, like in this, like, you know, first year postpartum, really comes up around things like feeding and sleeping Mm -hmm. and diaper changes. Potentially, I've had clients who have been like, I just cannot. This is so crazy. (laughs) And it really segues into the study, actually, that you had addressed recently on your Instagram because I didn't have children who slept through the night. And I sort of like made my peace with that by the second. I was like, they'll sleep eventually. Yes. But it was like I knew for the first year it was just not in my children to sleep through the night. Yeah, same actually. They retained one feed until 12 months and then just like something magically switched. And I did get some acceptance around that. But 
I think that it's really hard for people when they see, let's say, their friend's eight-week-old decide to sleep on a routine, as you said, or during the night. And then they've got their child who like fights nap time with all their might. So would you say temperament plays a role in sleep? And then we'll unpack that study. Yeah. So temperament does play a role in sleep. You know, of course, there are a lot of things that go into sleep. You know, there's medical issues, you know, there is some role of environment, but a lot of it is temperament, you know, in terms Mm. of your baby's activity level, if they are, you know, more sensitive to noise that can disturb their sleep. If they are, you know, more likely to have a negative mood, they may wake up and start crying. Whereas there's some babies that would wake up and, you know, doesn't bother them, just go right back to sleep. Mm. So it definitely, definitely plays a role in sleep. Yeah. And then some headlines came out about some research that were suggesting that parents who rock their children to sleep could potentially (laughs) impact their child's temperament for the better or the, I can't remember exactly what it was. I want to pull them up now, but yeah, tell me about them. There are some studies saying that rocking your child, I have some headlines, sorry, saying that rocking your child to sleep or cuddling them to sleep would improve their temperament. And then there were some saying the opposite, Mm -hmm. that doing that would actually harm your child's development in some way. These media headlines, right? Yes. And when I see headlines like this, it just tears me apart. Like I have to do something about it because I Mm. can't stand when, you know, not only research is being misconstrued, but it's being misconstrued in a way that gives parents even more shame. Yeah. We don't need any more. So I'm like, if there is a headline that causes more shame, then we need to make sure we address that. And parents know this is not how it works. So what the study found was that if you think about like the more difficult baby versus an easier baby, just as a way to kind of easily classify temperament is linked to the strategies you use to put your child to sleep. So they broke it up into more active strategies, like when you're walking around with your baby until they fall asleep, like bouncing them versus more passive strategies, which would be like reading them a book and helping them get sleepy. And they found that the parents who use more active strategies were more likely to have a child with a difficult temperament. And the parents who use the more passive were more likely to have a child with an easy temperament. And then the media misconstrued that to think that the strategies you use actually cause temperament, which is not Mm. the situation at all. So, you know, like I said, temperament's inborn. And those of us who have had these more challenging babies know that you kind of have to use these more active strategies sometimes just to get them to sleep. Right. That's the first thing I thought when I read it. I'm like, it's because I had to do this to get my child to sleep. Like, do you think that this is what I want to be doing? You know? (laughs) Yeah. No parent like does that out of their own free will. Yeah. Right. Let me just like put the baby in the baby carrier and pace the floor at two in the morning. That sounds like what I want (laughs) to do. You know, it's like no one is opting for that. It's coming out of necessity, right? Like it's coming out of the back and forth relationship between them and their baby. And if there's one thing I learned in my stats class in my undergrad, if there's one that I took away, it was that correlation does not equal causation, right? 100%. So just because these things run in parallel with each other does not mean that the ways that we're interacting with our children at bedtime influence or like, you know, cause their temperament. Yes, exactly. So that's something I see over and over again in the media is that correlation is not causation. So if you see something in the media that seems like an outrageous claim like this, like 
try to look for something like is associated with or is linked to, and then you'll know that, oh, it's just associated. That doesn't mean that these strategies cause temperament. You know, Mm. it's likely the other way around that more difficult temperament causes parents to use these more aggressive sleep strategies. Mm -hmm. So from what I have read, and I am not a specialist in child development by any means, but I do know that there are various traits of temperament that kind of develop into different types, if I'm saying that correctly. So can we unpack this a little bit so we can have a better understanding? Yes. Yes. So I can go through all the nine parts of temperament and also touch briefly on how that impacts your parenting. And please, you know, ask me questions as we go along. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, I'm here for it. Like I'm nerding out (laughs) for this. I've been waiting for this moment. I'm excited. Yeah. Yes. So first is activity, which we touched on a little bit when we were talking about babies. So how active is your child? And you can tell this from a very young age, you know, can they sit still? Are they fidgety? And then you want to think, how do I adapt my parenting for this? So for a more active child, you want to allow opportunities for movement. So that will really help that child to thrive. For the less active child, you know, you want to be sensitive to that. Don't schedule too many activities. Be aware of their energy levels. So really for each of these, I think it's important to think about how do I adjust my parenting to meet my child where they are. Mm -hmm. And then second is regularity, which we touched on, you know, how predictable is your child's schedule. And in terms of parenting, you know, if you have a child that's very regular, Stick to that routine, try to help them to develop their own routines and schedules and help to kind of meet them where they are there. And if your child is more irregular, you know, don't push the schedule and the routine as hard on them, you know, let them kind of have more of a free flowing day. It's interesting because I've got a neurodivergent son and while he needs structure and routine, he really walks to the beat of his own drum, gets sidetracked a lot, is a little squirrely. So keeping to the schedule and routine sometimes is really difficult because transitions are hard and, you know, moving away from things is hard. So it's interesting and it's been an interesting adjustment for me to know sort of the balance of the two. Like he needs some structure and routine, but he also needs some breathing room maybe in some of these transitions or like or some just free time where there aren't as many transitions or something. So as you're going through and you're sort of highlighting this. It's a fine tuning on our end to really know and understand and attune to our children. And then when we have that times two or three, it just really adds to that invisible and cognitive load of, you know, managing our child and their emotions. Like I can just see how this load expands for us over time. But I don't know. It's just an interesting piece of it that for every need our child has that is unique, we as a parent have to sort of shape shift to meet that need. And I think that when I think of the audience that I have here and moms who maybe even could be struggling in motherhood, that in itself can feel like a load at times, hey? Yes, 100%. Yes. And yeah, I think it's important to remember that like none of us can do this perfectly. You know, we have our own temperaments that are coming into this. Exactly. That's it. And it's really hard to, to balance that. And you know, when you have a different temperament than your child or when you have the same temperament, that can be frustrating Mm, too. I could see that. You know, if you're both irregular people and you just never make it to anything on time, you know, it's not ideal either. Yeah. Yeah. So just remembering that this is 
very difficult. It's frustrating. And we're all, you know, no matter how old your child is, you're kind of in the process of, we're always trying to better understand our children and ourselves and figuring this out. So nobody's got it figured out completely. You know, nobody's like responding in the right way to every aspect of this. You know, we're just all trying every day to understand our child a little bit better and to respond in a way that's more appropriate for them and helps them to thrive. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed. But the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Ashirina Reem's Psyched Mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create all the rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code rage20. 
That's momwell.com slash rage, code rage20. Let's run through the rest of them. And then maybe we talk about some of those pairings at the end that could be challenging, right? Like if maybe I'm like sort of like stubborn or whatever, I don't know. It's probably not one of the domains, but if it were, and I have a stubborn child that we might clash, there might be some pairings that emerge here. Yeah. So next would be sensitivity. This is, do they react more strongly to sounds, lights, textures, smells, and tastes? And so this isn't emotional sensitivity. This is more sensory sensitivity. Okay. And I have some kids that are, a few of mine are more sensory sensitive. And it is very important for parents to be empathetic to that. You know, my daughter, for example, like was refusing to wear socks for a while Mm. and she's got really stinky feet. So she's got to wear socks. Mm -hmm. And I eventually realized that it was the sensory aspect. You know, it was the seam that was bothering her. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, okay, let's go try on some different socks and see what works best for you. And knowing that she was a more sensory sensitive kid helped me to understand that and problem solve mm-hmm. rather than seeing it as a behavioral problem. Why won't you listen to me? Why would you put on your socks? You know, it was like, mm. oh, this is what's going on. Yeah. So just being aware of like how sensory sensitive is your child and helping them to come up with strategies for coping with this. Yeah, I think that's a big one. You'll know that it's not like a tantrum or a power struggle because it'll transcend just like one isolated moment, right? Like it'll be like, yes, it could be the tags on their clothes or it could be the socks for an ongoing amount of time or like you'll see it be sort of an ongoing piece for them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you'll see it across situations, definitely. Mm-hmm. So the next one is initial reaction. So this is in new situations or kind of different situations do they kind of jump right in head first or are they more, um, this is a term we use in the research, slow to warm up. Mm. And I like slow to warm up a lot better than shy because, mm. you know, it's not like shy kids are shy in every situation. It's more, it just takes them a little bit more time. So in your parenting, you want to make sure that you are aware of kind of how your child responds. And, you know, if you're taking them to a brand new gymnastics class or something, maybe you can't just drop them and go run your errands. Like maybe the first class you need to be with them and helping them. So just being aware of kind of what does your child need from you in in new situations and providing that support if they are a little bit more slow to warm up. And I think about this in terms of infants too. I imagine these slow to warm babies might be the ones that have a harder time separating yes, or maybe cry when others pick them up and they're like, you know, sort of startled by not being with mom or dad or something like that. Definitely. Yes. You can see that in babies. Yeah. So next is intensity. So how intensely do they respond positively and negatively to different sorts of situations? So this is like emotional intensity. Do they get really excited? Do they get really upset? And I think it's really important for parents to understand this because I think often these kids, the more intense kids are labeled as dramatic, Mm. you know, oh, you're just like being dramatic, but they really do feel their emotions more intensely. So validating their emotions is particularly important. Even if you're like, oh my gosh, why are they upset about this? This is so silly to recognize that for them, that there are real feelings there. Mm. And also to see the other side of these intense kids is that, yes, there are some low lows, but there are also some high highs. And, you know, that's a beautiful thing in life. So just appreciating these kids for who they are. Mm -hmm. 
I have one of these as a big feeler. And I remember when I started to like identify this in him, it was before he had language, but he was like starting to develop, like he wanted to communicate, but he couldn't. And so if he couldn't get it out and he didn't feel heard, it was a big, big deal. It was a big meltdown. It was big, big feelings because him feeling heard and seen and understood is so important to him that we had a really hard time sort of like getting on the same page and getting over that hump until he had more language to be able to like more clearly communicate. And so it's really interesting and so unique to my experiences with my other children and and what their needs were. So understanding, I think, these areas is really empowering because you can put it in a context or a framework that gives you some level of understanding, but also feels hopeful because we know that there are things that we can do now. Now that we have language for it, there is something that we can do to help our big feelers, for example. Yes, 100%. Yeah, I think it helps take a lot of the blame off parents and off kids themselves. Yeah. And instead focusing on, okay, my child is a more intense child. What can I do to help them thrive rather than how can I change them? You know, which we right. may not ever be able to change that aspect of their personality. Yeah. Okay. So next is adaptability, which is how easily do they adjust to new situations or changes? Is it easy for them to move from one activity to the next? For children who are slower to adapt, this is when it's really important for parents to give warnings and to explain what's going to happen in advance. You know, all of us as parents of toddlers, like try to do this to some extent, but Mm. with children who have a little bit more trouble adapting, making sure that you're just giving them lots of warnings, telling them what to expect in advance. So kids who struggle with adaptability are the kids who you know, when they start a new school, it's going to be a few months before they really settle in. Mm. Whereas there are some kids who show up on the first day and they're like, let's go. They're ready. So you just have to make sure that you are kind of setting up the environment to prepare them for changes. Mm -hmm. Really helpful for parents to know and see through that lens. And I'm sure that as we're describing these, any listener who sees this in their child's like nodding along, like, yes, that's my child, if they can see it, right? Like it just gives such clarity to their experience. Yeah. Yes. I think when you hear this and your child is high on one of these traits, you're like, wow, hundred percent. Exactly. So the next one is persistence. So do they stick with a task or do they tend to give up on something easily and move on? Persistence is a better way of framing it than stubbornness, I think, Mm. because this is an amazing trait that's really going to serve them in their life. But I admit as a parent, it's very, very hard. One of my kids is very persistent. Mm. And I'm like, this is going to be amazing for you in the future, but it's hard right now. you know. Oh, I say that to my husband all the time. Yeah. It's like, we've got like, you're very determined. And while I love that in you, and I don't want to crush that spirit. Oh my gosh, this is freaking hard to parent, isn't it? Like yes. it'll serve you in life, but it's putting me through the ringer right now. Yeah. You know, it's okay to also feel both of those things and to know them. Like it can be difficult now and we can also see it as a strength. Like there's room for both of those feelings, I would say. Yes. With the highly persistent kids, I would really recommend, you know, sticking firmly to your limits. You know, if you set a limit, can't go back on it because they will keep pushing, you know, they will throw a huge tantrum. They will do what it takes. But if you set a limit, really, really stick to it because otherwise you know, you're going down a bad path of them realizing that they can change your mind if they just scream loud enough. Mm -hmm. So making sure you stick to those limits. And, you know, as they start 
doing more difficult tasks on their own, making sure you help them to kind of work through the potential frustration and be careful of signs of perfectionism that you can see in some of these Mm -hmm. kids where they just Mm -hmm. won't give up. And, you know, kind of helping them to navigate that can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Okay. So next is distractibility. So how easily are they distracted by things in their environment? You know, for easily distractible kids, it's really important to take away things like background TV that can really distract them from, you know, focusing on play, which is how children learn in the early years. And as children get older, of course, and are trying to work on academic tasks and homework, just being careful with it. You set up the environment so that way they're not, you know, getting easily distracted by the TV or their iPad or toys that are sitting right next to their desk. And on the other side, children who are not easily distractible, you know, that sounds good in terms of school, but those kids can also kind of overfocus, mm. and it can be difficult for them to kind of move on from a negative feeling that they're having. So helping them to kind of learn some strategies from, okay, now it's time to move on. And how do we work on moving on from, you know, a difficult situation? So those would be more like our sticky brain thoughts, like our sticky brain children who have a hard time. Maybe they chew on it a bit much or yeah. Yes. Yes. I love that term. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, the last trait is mood. So do they react in a generally positive or a generally negative way on average? Do they seem you know, more happy or a more unpleasant mood on average? And it's important for the kids who kind of struggle with the more negative moods to not tell them that there's anything wrong with the fact that they feel these negative feelings, but to help them to express that in healthy ways and to learn how to cope with those feelings. So it's really important for these children to learn about labeling emotions, talking about it, and learning coping skills. Mm -hmm. And how is mood different from like our big feelers or big reactors? Is it like that it's a more ongoing sort of state of being or how would you say they're different? Yeah. So mood would just be like, is it positive or negative? And then intensity, which is like the big feelers would be, is it highly intense or is it low level? So the intense kids, they feel big, positive emotions and big negative emotions. And then mood is kind of like, well, is it more positive or negative? And it doesn't really say how intense it is, if if that makes sense. Yeah. I see it a little bit more as like perspective. Is it half empty, half full kind of like perspective through which they see things kind of? Yes, exactly. Okay. Gotcha. And so these nine domains, traits, whatever we call them, do they combine to make different types? Are there types of temperament or? Yeah. So there are different like types of temperament, you know, with babies, there's the classification of like difficult versus easy. There's a way to kind of combine these different types, but it kind of depends on the child's age. Okay. And I also feel like it's very important for parents not to, especially with the difficult versus easy, to not pigeonhole their kids. Yeah. Because I don't think that's as helpful for parents. I think it's more helpful for parents to think of their child as intense or to have more negative emotionality than difficult. Totally. I just don't yeah. feel like that's a helpful term. So I like to encourage parents to like think about it in terms of these different traits rather than pigeonhole their child as being a certain type, if that makes sense. Totally. I think that the risk that we run with, whether it's labels of any sort, is attributing them to the person and sort of who they are. So like 
he's a difficult kid or he's a bad kid or he, you know, and then that's how we sort of interpret behavior, you know, rather than being able to see that our child's needs are different, neither good nor bad. They're just different. Exactly. And keeping a more neutral stance. So I can see that we run the risk of that with like typing or categorizing, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And so to step back now at the bigger picture and say like something that you alluded to before, like we have our own temperament in this mix, don't we? Yeah. And as parents, trying to manage some of those things ourselves, like maybe we feel really big feelings and though we've got a really big feeler. And so I think it's always so important for us to keep in mind the like reciprocal sort of back and forth that's happening because what I have found, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, is that each of my children provoke or stir up different things in me because their temperaments are different. And so it requires something different from me, good or bad or challenging or not challenging, just different. And so I don't know. I just find it really interesting. Yes. I think it's so important to also go through these factors and think that we just went through the nine factors and think about how it applies to yourself, not just your kid. And think about how, you know, there's something in the research we call goodness of fit, which means does your parenting and the environment kind of match your child's temperament? So think about Mm. how your parenting and the environment that you've set up kind of match. And I think it's important to realize that it can be challenging, not only when you have different temperaments, but also when they're the same, you know, I think about the intensity is one a lot of us struggle with when we have intense kids. It's really hard as a parent if you're also intense because in those heightened emotions, you're both pretty dysregulated. And, but it's also hard if you are a less intense person and your child is really intense because you're like, whoa, 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 you know, why are you getting so upset? You know, this is not a big deal. And it's harder for you to empathize. So I think like for parents to kind of go through these factors and think about, okay, where do I stand and how does that impact my parenting is really important because it's all about the interaction. You know, it's not just about your child in isolation. It's not just about you as a parent in isolation. It's all about the interaction between your two very different temperaments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think that as parents, we're drawn towards the parenting books and reading about our children and learning about their development and learning about them and seeing this flip side or trying to highlight our own experience of trying to say that like, it's a two-way street here. We also need to, like you said, take this and learn and understand it for ourselves because we are also a part of the interaction. And if we aren't understanding our own needs and if we aren't setting up our environment or routine or day accordingly, then we're also going to struggle in these interactions, despite what they are, you know, like it it could be a mixture of different things. So it makes me want to like write these nine out and it makes me want to like do a little inventory and check of myself because I do know that there are things like stimulation. I found out I had ADHD at 34 years old. So that was (laughs) a bit of a discovery (laughs) when we were taking my child to be evaluated. And I was like, that's where that comes from, you know? So yeah. (laughs) yeah, like, oh, interesting. But it's been so empowering to know these pieces about myself because I can more effectively plan and then these interactions can go differently as well. So I would encourage listeners to, you know, think about your child and their temperament and their needs, but also on the flip side, do that for yourself because I think that it can change a lot when we better understand our own needs in any given situation as well. Yes, I completely agree. 
Yeah. Okay. This has been so insightful and it gets turned into a blog post for any other real visual people who want to go back and reread this and maybe like take the headings down and make some notes because I feel like that's what I'm going to want to do after this. So if anyone out there wants that, you can always refer back to the blog post too. It'll have it all there for you. Dr. Kara, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find the work that you're putting out there? Yes. So I'm um, at Parenting Translator on Instagram and www.parentingtranslator.com. And I also recently started a newsletter on Substack where I kind of dive more into some of this nitty gritty kind of details of the research if anybody's interested in that. I love it. And I love that it's like been birthed out of this like passion that you have just to digest and interpret this information for friends and people. That's how you know you're really passionate, right? When you just do it for fun. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And that it's emerged into this for you. It's incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. That's such a great conversation. Thank you. Isn't Dr. Kara so knowledgeable? I really like how she took each of the traits and helped us understand how we can apply this so that we can really meet our child's needs. In reflecting upon this episode, I went to look for further research to understand the toll that a challenging temperament can have on a mom's mental health because I hear this so often and I know this episode was focused on baby, but I hear so often how difficult it can be to manage certain types of temperaments for parents, especially if we're struggling with our mental health or ADHD or anxiety, etc. And I came across a really interesting statistic. Now, research finds that mothers of babies with difficult temperaments are more likely to report higher levels of depression and anxiety, dissatisfaction with parenting, lower levels of marital satisfaction, and more feelings of guilt, shame, and self-doubt. It is so important for us to understand things like our child's temperament or our own temperament and the combination of the two because you need to know that you are not failing It's not that you are inadequate. It's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's simply that sometimes our children come out a little spicier or more feisty than the next or a little bit more busy or as big feelers or whatever the case may be. But I want you to know if you do have a spirited child like that, it is that much more important for you to take care of your own mental health and well-being so that you can feel satisfaction in your parenting role, so that you can maintain a strong bond and connection instead of resentment or frustration brewing under the surface. So if that is you, and if this speaks to you at all, I encourage you to reach out. I encourage you to book a free 15-minute consult with one of our mom therapists today. They're trained to help in this adjustment to parenthood, and they get it. They know what you're going through. Head to happyasamother.co slash wellness to learn more. That's happyasamother.co slash wellness. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I am being joined by Love After Babies, Shana Shockett on the show. Shana is joining us to help us understand how having a baby can impact our relationship and ways for us to move through conflict as a couple instead of sweeping it under the rug or avoiding each other. But how do we truly repair with each other and move on? You do not want to miss it. These are critical skills we all need in our relationships. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. 
If you're looking for the resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast. To join the Happy as a Mother VIP list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to happyasamother.co slash newsletter. Until next episode, Mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing an amazing job. <laughs>